The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. It's hot up here. <laughs> I'm moving back. Uh, wow. Well, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along or your bulletin, we're going back to the Sermon on the Mount. I was reading this week a book that was just riveting, and it was about the greatest uh, natural disaster that has come onto uh, American soils, and it was the hurricane of Galveston in 1900. And maybe some of you saw the book that was a New York Times bestseller some 20 years ago now. It's called Isaac's Storm. And Isaac is a meteorologist, and he's brilliant. I mean, because he's, and he's also a man of his times. I mean, this is 1900. We've arrived. We understand weather. We can predict these tornadoes, and, and he knew enough to be actually dangerous. They knew enough to inoculate themselves in a bad way, because he was fully convinced and had written about how a hurricane could never hit Galveston. And that if it did hit, the storm surge could not be just but a few feet the way that the layout of Galveston and that they would be fine. And little did he know, his, fi his house was five feet above sea level. And at one point, the water was 10 feet into his house. So it was at least 15 feet above sea level. And uh, he lost his pregnant wife uh, in the storm. But miraculously, some of his kids uh, survived. And uh, it's just this riveting story about, you know when you read these stories, you know what's going to happen, right? Because you've seen the title, you know what's going to happen. So you're constantly reading it saying, no, no, no. You're so smart. How can you be so stupid? Trust your instincts. You know, he gets to the shore. He's seeing all these signs that are indicating hurricane and the barometric pressure is, is dropping like off a cliff and the water's coming in, and, but it doesn't compute with all that, he, all that he's learned. This doesn't make sense. This shouldn't be happening. So you're denying the obvious. And as the water comes rolling into town, and the kids are, are playing in the water, and they're having fun, and the mothers think this is delightful, and, and you're just saying, no, 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 you know this is going to be terrible. And the mothers begin to realize what's going on. And the mothers start to plead with their husbands that are working downtown. One sends a child or teenage son to go get your dad and tell him to come home immediately. Tell him to come home. And the child gets there and the dad makes a joke to all the other guys about how women are just so prone to worry and back to work. And some of these had to live with the regret that they never saw their families again because they didn't listen to their wives and you're starting to slowly wake up to the reality that this flood water is climbing and climbing and one husband came home for lunch and she pled with him please do not go back to work and he went back to work and so as this storm begins to crash in and you're reading it you're you're realizing I mean at one point Isaac opens the front door to his house and literally the water rose four feet in four seconds so it rose from his toes up to his waist 
over his waist in four seconds. And that's when everybody knows. Everybody knew we're in, we're in big trouble. And what you realize as you're reading this is that the people that did better surviving this hurricane were the people who fled for higher ground. There was a last train that had rolled into town. And as it's coming into town, the water is over the rails as the floodwaters are coming in. And the train gets to a point where it can't go anymore and has to just stop in the middle of nowhere. And there's 90-some people on the train. And only a few realized, we're, we're going to die if we stay here. And so they fled. And they went into the water. And they made it to the lighthouse where there was stairs and higher ground. The rest of the 80-some people were never seen again. The people that fled too late, though, when the houses became cartwheels and then just began to disintegrate, when your house starts to, to rise, when the water gets so high, your house just cartwheels and disintegrates and people are grabbing doors as rafts and grabbing porches that are floating and upside-down roofs and they're trying to float away and some are trying to cling to the trees and the trees were actually not a great refuge because that's where all the poisonous snakes went to. And so they're getting bit by poisonous snakes and dying as they're clinging to trees. And as you're reading all of this, it just takes you way back. And it, it humbles the stuffing out of you, as you could say, how could people not see this coming? And they didn't take warning. And when the warnings came, they foolishly surmised, we've seen floods like this before. It's no big deal. Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is giving something as a warning that's much bigger than any hurricane, any natural disaster. And in this very passage, he's giving us something, a warning that's much greater than anything that hit Galveston. And he's cleaning up an, clearing up an assumption. He gives a correction. He gives a caution and a solution. Will we flee for higher ground this morning, or will we stay put? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 27, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. Let me pray for us. Lord, such a sobering text, and may we take your warnings seriously, and may we flee to higher ground. Lead us to the rock that is higher than I. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the assumption is in verse 27, the corrections in verse 28, and the caution and the solution are verses 29 to 30. The correction based on the assumption, is the scribes and Pharisees had an external view of the law. And they were blinded by the internal weight of the law. The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. And the Pharisees rightly understood that the physical act of adultery, having sex with someone other than your spouse, is sin. That would be a violation of the seventh commandment. They understood that, and they prided themselves that they were good and moral people, because they didn't do that. That was their assumption. Meanwhile, their hearts were inwardly full of selfish lust in which they fantasized about other spouses and 
looked with lust upon other spouses. There really wasn't really many single people in that day and age. Jesus actually brought in a, a state of singleness and actually freed it for people that could be single. But in that day, you pretty much, once you're of a marriageable age, you were uh, married. And so you have people that are coveting over each other's spouses, but then they were also divorcing their spouses for upgrades whenever an upgrade was feasible. And we can look and say, man, how could they think like that? Well, I would just say to us for starters, who are we to think we're any better? The Pharisees to whom Jesus is addressing, they didn't have access to Netflix, to cable TV, and the myriad of sinful, sinful off-ramps of the Internet. I know mean, there's been a huge spike in pornography since COVID-19 as the numbers have just skyrocketed as people are home and have more time. If you really want to know where your heart is this morning, I mean, they say, you know, look at your checkbook. You could also say, look at the search history on your Internet. Look at your search history. It really reveals where our affections lie, what we really want to look at. It's really a mirror to our souls. And so if we think to look down upon the Pharisees, we need to take heed to ourselves. And so Jesus gives a much needed correction to this wrong assumption that you should feel good about the seventh commandment in verse 28. He writes that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The correction is an unbelievable paradigm shift. And the reason that it's such an unbelievable paradigm shift is because the people that were thinking they were living this out, they thought they couldn't be more right and righteous and heading in the, righteous, in the right direction. And now they're realizing they couldn't have been more wrong and more unrighteous and headed in the wrong direction. So when I say it's a paradigm shift is that they went from feeling good about themselves, heading in the right direction, to feeling bad about themselves, realizing they're heading in the wrong direction. And it's one thing to think, okay, I'm wrong. I'm going the wrong way. I remember one time I was, you know, as a college student, I was in Brooklyn, and I got lost. And so I went to a gas station, and I asked, I need directions to the Brooklyn Bridge, which is really stupid. Um, I was a long way from the Brooklyn Bridge. And so this person just said, oh, you make a left here, left here, and then over there. And they sent me over the Verrazano Bridge. And there I am in Staten Island is where you get to the other side. And there's a big $5 toll, which $5 was a big deal back then. And, uh, and you think, okay, big deal. You know, at least you know you're at, you're at Staten Island. This isn't like, oh, you're going the wrong direction. Just make a U-turn, turn around. This direction that, that Jesus is getting at, the choice has eternal ramifications that are permanent. And he's saying that lust is the road to hell. And so when you hear that, you think, wow, he must be really precious to have a penalty that's so steep. And so it should beg the question of what is so special and what is so important to Jesus that he's willing to protect it with such a penalty. You see, Jesus not only gives the correction, first of cautions. And he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body 
go into hell. Now, a lot of people will look at this that are not trained in scriptures or trained in the church, and even some people in the church look at this and they say, that sounds archaic. This sounds like God is against pleasure. Doesn't he know that he made us to have a sexual drive? And this sounds repressive. This sounds unhealthy, unloving, and unfair. Maybe you've talked to people like that, and they see the sexual ethic of Scripture. And, they, and at first blush, this might seem like Jesus has a bad view of sex, but it's actually just the opposite. As I was saying, this is a whole paradigm shift. Jesus is actually redeeming marriage, and he's redeeming women in particular, who are being treated like objects and toys that can easily be, be used and discarded whenever you want. And if that was the case then in Jesus' day, how much more is that true today? Do you remember the story of David's son, Amnon? We're told about Amnon in 2 Samuel 13, and this was after David had committed adultery. And David's adultery, you know, it just says that he, went, he was taking a nap. He comes out, looks out on his deck, or, and he's very high and overseeing the town, which isn't that big. And it says he sees a woman who was exceedingly beautiful. She wasn't just pretty. I mean, the scriptures say she was exceedingly beautiful. And he lusted after her and desired her. And they, they're trying to warn her, warn him of who she is. This is, this is so-and-so's wife. And he says, bring her to me. And so not only does David sin, but now this sin is passed down to his children, and it gets much worse. And we're told in 2 Samuel 13 that Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So this is like his half-sister. And it says Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon, Amnon to do anything to her. 2 Samuel 13, verse 11, it says... Amnon had a, a twisted friend who came up with a plot of how he could uh, reach Tamar to go and to pretend that, that he's sick and to have her come and, and make him some cakes and be all alone in the house. And when she's feeding you these cakes and bread in bed, then you take advantage of her. And so we're told that when she brought him near to, to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not hold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than her, than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then we're, we're told something really interesting. We're told that Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. That's a pretty scary uh, reality of what the reality of lust really is. It's really a hatred. And so Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her, and he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Is that how women should be treated, guys? Well, what makes us think that sex outside of marriage is really anything 
less than this. Um, C.S. Lewis has this great quote in, in Mere Christianity where he says this about sex outside of marriage. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. Can I translate that for you? Lewis is actually comparing sex outside of marriage to bulimia. Someone who's bulimic is taking food and separating it from its full purpose of nourishment for their bodies. And they only want to savor and taste it, and then they spit it out or vomit it up. And what Lewis is saying with sex is when sex is made to connect us, unite body and soul in an absolute one flesh experience, you're dividing your soul and your body when you don't commit the rest of your life for the rest of your life to that person in the covenant context of marriage, you're actually doing harm to yourself, is what Jesus is saying as well. So rather than saying Jesus has a low view of sex or it's a primitive view or a puritanical view, we're saying just the opposite. To use an analogy from Tim Keller, think of it like the Mona Lisa at an art museum. There's only one Mona Lisa, and it's invaluable, and therefore as a director of, of the museum, if you were given that Mona Lisa, you would want to take extreme precautions and impose strict penalties to ensure that the Mona Lisa isn't tampered with, that nobody's you know, messing with this painting. You want it to be enjoyed and not tarnished. But if the Mona Lisa wasn't special, you could just put it anywhere, and anybody could handle it or touch it. And in doing so, you would only cheapen the painting. You see, that's what the world is doing with sex. There's actually an incredibly low esteem of it, and it's being treated and, con and cheapened more and more as a consumer who just tries to enjoy part of it outside the covenant context of marriage. And what is happening is a radical dividing of body and soul, and it's harming people. And what's, So Jesus is, is redeeming marriage. He's redeeming women in particular with these words because he's protecting something sacred, something beautiful, something that God has blessed in marriage and says this is something that should be honored by all and undefiled. As, as Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so Jesus is alerting us here to the danger of hell. And hell isn't something that's spoken much about these days, but Jesus just in the Gospel of Matthew speaks of hell nine times, and there are another nine references to the fire of hell. So about 18 references to hell. He spoke of hell more than anyone else. He came to save us from it. And unless you see the danger that's in it, it's not something to be played with or flirted with. This is not to be an, an adrenaline rush. I titled the message, What's Up Danger, from the song that some of you younger people would be familiar with. And there's this idea today with young people that flirting with danger and actually experiencing danger gives you a thrill. 
So you know, there's a whole video on Netflix right now of the of these these people that ride these hundred and some foot waves, you know, on a surfboard, and then they show the people, you know, with a jet ski, and they got to get to them because if they crash, there's another hundred foot wave coming behind, and another hundred footer after that, and the chances of you actually surviving if there's no jet ski, probably not very good. But the people just live for this adrenaline rush to ride this 100-foot wave. Or you get these people that drop in off a helicopter and they drop in right to the top of the mountain where it's virgin snow, several feet, and they start skiing down. And they have to ski to the side because they usually start an avalanche. So they got to keep going, you know, one direction so the avalanche doesn't catch them. And they're able to beat the avalanche. And people think, man, that's just the ultimate thrill rush. Well... This is so dangerous that you, you don't play with this because what you're playing with is, is children. We were told never to play with fire and God is a consuming fire and this isn't something that you play with. You see, I'll let the scriptures speak for themselves of what Jesus has to say about this to, to let the warning sink in. John the Baptist said about Jesus when he introduced him he said even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees every tree that does not bear fruit good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire i baptize you with water for repentance but he who's coming after me is mightier than i whose sandals i'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and Jesus says in the prior passage that I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says again, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so if your right eye causes you to sin, he says it again in Matthew 18, Tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a sing single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then he ends with, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And in Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats, that he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not the place you want to be. Those are not good roommates. And there's no getting another roommate. Hell is a permanent landing place of eternal agony. And it's described as fire, as a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. It's where God gives his full weight of his punishment and his wrath is poured out against all those who refuse to seek his will and to seek his way. And God's way is through his son. He said, Jesus said about 
this he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So those who refuse to come through Jesus and those who refuse to do God's will. And what is God's will? God's will is your sanctification that you should avoid sexual immorality is tied right up in with that. First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. And so Jesus isn't just giving us a caution here, which it's very much a warning. And we should take that seriously. And that's where most people stop, I think, sometimes in preaching this text. And they talk about how we were not able to keep it, and that's all true. But it isn't just a caution, it's a solution. How can this be a solution? Well, what does he say? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Does that mean I should literally cut off my, my arm and cut out my eye? What Jesus is literally saying is that we should take such radical measures to deal with sin, to avoid lust, and to avoid hell, because an unchecked lust and unchecked anger, he's saying, are highways to hell. And so everybody has to cut something, as we all are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. What does the cutting off look like us, for us this morning? Maybe there's apps on your phone that you don't need to have on your phone because they don't take Jesus' authority seriously. Or maybe they're causing you to flirt with sin and to play with fire. You think about, you know, these are, this is kind of like in a war, you have a warrior's mentality. And a warrior's mentality is you don't go into war thinking, I just want to get hit with a few bullets, just a few steamy scenes. A warrior's mentality is war, and war is not to get hit at all. And so what do we need to cut off to take these radical steps? Websites that you know you're not going to go to. Movies that you know you're not going to see. Apps that you're going to delete. For each of us, it's going to look a little different. But each has to know his own heart and where are the very areas of temptation and where to take uh, radical measures to obey our Lord Jesus, knowing that his authority is greater and worth living for. John Stott put it like this. I think this is helpful. He says, it's better to forgo some experiences in this life that this life offers in order to enter the life, which is life indeed. It's better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. Do you know what a cultural amputation is? It's when everybody else around you is, oh, this, this movie's great. It's got a few steamy scenes. I mean, it's just going to rape your soul and molest you to the, to the innermost. But it's a great movie. You should see it. Or you're like a buffoon if you don't have the smartphone or you don't have the latest and greatest thing that is often a recipe for temptation. You'll seem like a, bu a buffoon. You'll be like the wife pleading with your husband that there's a storm coming and we need to flee to higher ground. But everybody around you is just laughing and playing and enjoying the waters coming into the city. It, but it's so good. And they don't see that the destruction is just right over the, the edge. And so for all of us, we all have to wrestle seriously with things that, that lead to a cultural 
amputation because we can't engage at the same level that the world engages. And they can tell you, look, the acting is great. These people are great. It's a great movie. It might be. But there are certain things you got to say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'd love to see that Netflix TV series, but I saw how it introduced itself, you know, with MA and nudity right at the top. Thing, eh, that's probably not going to be, that's not going to be good for my soul. Are you holding out this morning to something that you know you need to let go of? Because Jesus is coming in with his authority. What are you willing to, to give up and lay down to follow Jesus? Maybe you need another job. Seriously. I've, I've heard from people that said, if I did not switch jobs, I would have fallen into adultery. That I was in a position of temptation where these lunches were of such. And this person was making passes at me that I knew that I had a need, that I needed another job. Maybe you're listening at home and you realize this is, me, this is you. Or maybe you're here. But take Jesus' warning seriously. Maybe you need another job. Maybe you need to move. Maybe you need to move. There was somebody I knew not too long ago that he worked a lot at home and she worked a lot at home. And she was the lady that they'd meet at the bus stop when they dropped the kids off to school. And their other spouses were off to work and they would started connecting, started developing a bond. What a blessing that he had to move. Praise God, may have saved his soul. Maybe you need to move. Are you holding on to some lustful holdout that you think is going to satisfy you? You see, the Bible says that's idolatry. And Jesus is saying, cut it off, throw it away this morning. Let him be your spouse because Jesus is the bridegroom. Find your joy in him. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, until God is the lover of your soul, you're not going to be fit to be a lover of anybody else. You're going to be trying to get out of romantic love, that which only God can give you. You're going to be trying to get the self-acceptance out of it. So Jesus is pointing here and saying, here's the problem. What we do with sex is we think it will heal us. Finally, we'll be somebody. Finally, we'll have the security. If a really beautiful person thinks I'm beautiful, then I'll be somebody. And Jesus is saying there's only one person beautiful enough. There's only one person who can love you unconditionally enough to satisfy what your heart needs. And if you look at anybody else and try to get that out of them, your life is going to be distorted by lust, even if that person is your spouse. You have to remember what you have been saved from and what you have been saved to. And let me just remind us of our, who we are today. If you're a believer in Christ, you put your trust in him. This is what we've been saved to be. We've been saved to be holy and blameless. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.4. He saved us to be conformed to the image of his son, not to conform to the image of the world. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You've been saved to a new restored image of God. We're to put on the new self, Ephesians 4.24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We've been saved to glorify God with our bodies. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from those things which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now, but now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life, Romans 6. For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now, but now we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, but now you must put them all away. I appeal to you, to my child Onesimus, whose father I, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now, he is indeed useful to you and to me. For at one time, you were darkness. But now. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And maybe you're here today, I'm sure many of us, you feel guilt with a text like this. You feel shame. I've been reading this great book, and we just ordered 30 copies. And whoever wants a copy, we will get you a copy. But it's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And it was Ben's number one book that he recommended in your summer reading. And some of you may have already gotten the book. And all these different people started recommending this book to me. I'm like kind of the last pastor to show up at the party to read the book. It's wonderful. And what you realize as you're reading this book, it's a book you read slowly, is just how much Christ loves. His heart is not just to lay down his life for his people, but his heart is to live for them. And he, he loves his children. And so the question from the shorter catechism that I want to, or larger catechism I want to end with today is how does Christ make intercession? Do you think Christ's work is done and he's just, you know, up, on a, up in heaven? What is he doing up there? This is what he's doing. He makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. In the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. You are fully accepted of Christ's work on earth and now his work in heaven to plead what he has done. He loves his children. Will you come to him this morning afresh? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, lover of our souls, you are the one who loved us before the world began. Father, thank you for your love for us, choosing us before the foundation of the world, giving us to your Son. And Jesus says all the ones that the Father has given to him will come to him, and that you will by no means cast out so lord may we hear the voice of the shepherd today you said you know those who are his and those who hear your voice follow you and you give them 
eternal life. Lord, would you conform us to your image. Wean us off of this world. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will complete what you've begun. Help us to see more and more the beauty of Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.